Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Eric Bauza. Now, he's a Canadian voice actor who is just the seventh person ever to voice Bugs Bunny on screen. You'll soon be able to hear him do Bugs and many other voices in Space Jam, a new legacy which comes to theaters soon. We'll catch up with him and find out how Mr. Dress Up put him on the road to working with the Looney Tunes. What's up, Doc? That's later on. Then we'll get to know M. Leona Godin, author of Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. We talk about her life, gradually losing her sight, Ray Charles, and much more. First up, though, let's meet Johnny Sweet, who joins me from Queens, New York. Johnny is a filmmaker and director who watched his industry come to a halt in the early days of the pandemic, and then turned his eye to another industry, the bar business. His film asks the question, what happens if the entire bar industry in New York City is laid off in a single day? His film, last called The Shutdown of New York City Bars, explores the social and economic impact of COVID-19 on the New York City hospitality industry. It was almost like turning on a switch. Second week, beginning third week in March, all of a sudden, our ER was full. They were essentially all covid 9 a.m. on Tuesday, all bars across the city of New York will be closed. Wait, what? My entire industry got laid off in a day. Why set this movie uh, in and around the bars of Queens? Do you live in the neighborhood or was it just a particularly vibrant scene? Yeah, I'm local. Uh, actually, I live two blocks away from one of the bars that are uh, featured in the film. So, you know, we were... We were looking to do something that was important, that was communal. And it was right out, unfortunately, it was right outside our, our front doorsteps. So uh, that's why we focused on uh, on this borough predominantly for the film. And tell me a little bit about the bar scene uh, in Queens. Uh, yeah, so I was born and raised in New York. I actually grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, Queens is completely different. Queens is, you know, there's houses, you know, it feels a little more suburban. Right. I'd say the bar scene, uh, the bar scene out here is a lot more neighborhood uh, esque. So locals from the neighborhood are the ones that predominantly drop into these places. Right. Uh, you know, kind of that Cheers vibe. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of a better comparison. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the wittiest one I can think of. Well, it's where everyone knows your name. One of those. I, kind of yeah, bars. exactly. So when I lived in, uh, you know, I lived in Brooklyn for a long time, and uh, you know. Uh, my place was Angry Wade's. And so there's uh, there's a lot of those types of establishments here in Queens and Brooklyn, not as many chains uh, as you might see in, in Manhattan or upscale suit and tie type of uh, type of establishments. And certainly to me, they all looked like they had some age to them, that they'd been around for a while, that, you know, there's a, a real community that builds up in a bar uh, that's been there for 50 years. You know, it feels different than, than as you say, the chain restaurant or, or any of those other things. These bars that you focused on uh, had a real kind of neighborhood vibe. And it, you, you could feel it, even though you don't see them when they're open, you could, you could feel that they were probably interesting places to hang out. Yeah, this is where actually most, I'd say Brooklyn and Queens are where predominantly most of the artists that come to New York uh, are living. Uh, most of them actually get jobs in in this lane in the hospitality industry. 
So you get uh, those types of regulars usually coming into these establishments. And I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's taverns here that have been here for over 100 years, including, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, the one that like, uh, the name's skipping me right now. But, you know, there's one in Woodside where one of the scenes of Goodfellas was filmed. Right. So, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of those mom and pop establishments that, uh, you know, were predominantly making up the borough prior to uh, St. Patrick's Day of last year. Right. And you talk in the film, and it's very interesting, about the three spaces, your workspace, your home life space, your home space, and then the bar is kind of that third space. There's this concept of the third place, which is neither work nor home. And the bar is an example of a third place. And in New York, that's really important because we don't really have living rooms and dining rooms the same way other places do. You know, there's there's countless other third spaces that, you know, people can attach themselves to, whether it's a coffee shop or basketball court or, you know, whatever. Or they're just sitting in the park and reading mm -hmm. and the same, you know, people that you see, you know, that come to that area can constitute a third space. But yeah, I mean, in New York, the bar, the neighborhood bar is, is a very dominant third space. And uh, yes, it's precisely because we don't have living rooms and dining rooms yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, and balconies unless we, you know, want to pay uh, five grand a month in rent, which uh, obviously we are not of the top 1% and we will not be doing that. But That's right. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, bar, the neighborhood bar helps out with, uh, uh, with that sort of living flexibility. You're listening to my interview with Johnny Sweet, director of Last Call, the shutdown of New York City bars, a new documentary now on VOD. Describe to me what it must have been like uh, in this neighborhood you talk about uh, living in Queens and, and the, the bars that are, are uh, in the film are in and around your neighborhood. So tell me what it was like, but everything closed down on the same day. Describe what it was like in Queens. Oof. Um, sirens going by every five minutes, uh, all night, all day. Um, we had to get used to that because there weren't really any other sounds because everybody was indoors. Yeah. Um, I would... I mean, the bars shutting for me, the connection I had personally was in college. I worked at a bar for four years when I was uh, up at Syracuse. It was called Conrad's. And some of my, you know, the, the best employee morale I ever felt was working there. Uh, you know, I have people who I worked with there that are, you know, are invited to my wedding. So mm -hmm. um, that's that's the initial community I felt for outside of my own selfish feelings for my own industry, right. the media industry. Uh, so that's why I, I, that was the, why we initially I wanted to focus on finding that outlet uh, to try and amplify their voices. But I'd say it was it was different here because we were an epicenter. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there were thousands of people dying in our area. Uh, that was the that was the getting used to when we were going out and, and filming was we were going to see some of those, uh, some of those images. Much of the film deals with uh, the bars being closed down and the, and the human cost that comes along with that. And not just being out of work, but the idea that the, the spaces, these communal spaces are gone for people to come and, and have human contact with one another. So I have no job, not sure what type of money's coming in next. Not sure if I'm gonna get sick. If somebody else gets sick, I have to watch them get sick through a camera phone. It's like being kidnapped. The traditional tools that we have, talking, touching, feeling, being close, we've not been able to. Emotionally, I think it's taken a 
a big toll. We're not meant to live like that. What if we go a year without opening our bar or longer? We take care of people. And it just, it's hard that we need to be taken care of and we don't know if we're going to be. You've got a guy who makes a couple of records while he's in lockdown from his bartending job. Um, one of them uh, starts a, a, a company where she's uh, doing videos about uh, drinks and cocktails and things, and she gets picked up. So there are some hopeful stories to come out of this. Was that important to you to put a little uplift at the end of the film? Well, it's authentic to the cultural character of New York City because mm. this industry employs so many you know, people who come here dreaming of being uh, in the cultural arts, whether it's music, television, on stage, Broadway, etc. So, you know, Willie and Jenna already had those skill sets and now they had the time to try and uh, perfect those crafts. Yeah. So it was their way of coping with what was going on around them. They, well, Willie, what Willie calls it was he was having an art attack, A-R-T, yeah, yeah. and it needed to express himself during this time in order to, you know, in order to maintain some sense of normalcy. So, you know, I think them expressing themselves creatively was how they were able to adapt and find other sources of income to try and buy more time uh, as we were trying to, you know, get out of this cloud. What's going on in Queens right now? Unfortunately, about one third of uh, all of, um, I'd say, non-chain bars and restaurants uh, in the area have been are either wiped out or on the way to being wiped out. So it's unfortunately the state did not provide the runway to uh, help these people out, even though this industry sacrificed their personal and financial freedoms in order to help bend the curve. Cause if they don't do that, uh, thousands more would have died. There's just, yeah. that's just the fact if they didn't, you know, if, if they didn't willingly shut down for that long a period of time, this the virus would have definitely gotten out of control throughout the entire city, uh, mostly due to the subways and public transportation and, you know, other things that are just tough to, you know, prevent people from being less than six feet away from each other. Do you feel nervous at all that the closure of so many mom and pop places, the places that really truly give a neighborhood uh, its character is going to change the, the feel of Queens, New York? Uh, it's definitely going to change New York as a whole. Uh, I'd, I'd invite anyone when they can come to New York now. And, you know, there's a lot more businesses that are boarded up. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a graffiti renaissance that's coming back <laughs> that I haven't seen since the 80s. Yeah. Uh, so, so we have that. Um, I, it's just... Uh, unfortunately it feels like it's going to be a lot of chains are going to buy up a lot of these places and that's what we're going to see in our neighborhoods and it's just it's not going to be the same but mostly because these these neighborhood bar here's the thing when you spent when you spend money at these neighborhood bars these bars spend money back into the neighborhood so it's like every dollar you spend you're actually creating like a dollar 75 for you know a two or three block radius uh, when you put a, a chain in the middle of that a chain restaurant or chain bar or establishment, that money is going straight up to corporate America. It's not being reinvested into uh, the, the local businesses. So uh, that's what I fear is probably going to happen on a on a pretty prevalent uh, level. That was Johnny Sweet. Find his documentary, Last Call, The Shutdown of New York City Bars on VOD. My next guest is M. Leona Godin. 
Her new book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness, looks at everyone from Homer to Helen Keller, from Dune to Stevie Wonder and the invention of Braille to explore the fascinating history of blindness. And she interweaves those stories with her own story of gradually losing her sight. Leona joins me via Zoom from San Francisco. How do you define the sight blindness continuum uh, as it refers to your life? Oh my goodness, that is a great opening question. Um, <laughs> so I started out, so personally, I started out life with uh, normal vision, and mm -hmm. I put that into quotes, normal vision. And um, when I was about 10, I suddenly couldn't see the uh, the blackboard from the back of the class. And so we went and we thought we were going to get some glasses, but it turned out that glasses didn't work. Um about a year or two later of lots of doctor's appointments with people saying, doctors saying things like, oh, well, maybe her eyes are growing too fast for her body or, you know, or maybe you've been taking her to too many eye doctors, you know, so basically them not knowing and right. making stuff up. Um, and then finally, I got a diagnosis of a progressive eye disease. So pretty much since the time I was 10 until now, um, I have been losing vision. And I would say mm -hmm. that most of my life, I was a visually impaired person. So um, for many years, I could walk around without a cane, without a dog, um, but I couldn't read because I didn't have any central vision. Um, and so just in the last maybe five to 10 years, I've considered myself a blind person instead of a visually impaired person. Mm -hmm. And I guess that journey, um, made it very clear to me from the very beginning that blindness is not one thing or another thing. It is right. a continuum. And most of us, I mean, the majority of people that you might see with a cane or a dog, um, or even people that are legally blind, but don't need a cane or a dog, um, are going to be somewhere on that continuum. And I, I use that as kind of the literal breaking down that binary of, you know, you're either blind or you're sighted, either metaphorically or physically. And there is a, a connection here. And I'm sorry about the sirens whizzing by in the background. Not here. your fault. <laughs> I hope it's not. I hope they're not coming. Here. Uh, coming there, there is a connection between uh, losing your eyesight and discovering punk rock for you. Where does punk rock fit along in this continuum? And how was it for you as a release or was it uh, a, a way to express anger? What was it for you? Mm. Yes, I um, I feel like it, it kind of was a way of, um, it's hard to say, right? What what mm -hmm. attracted me as a teenager was certainly the, you know, the irreverence, the colored hair. I, I've sometimes said things like, well, you know, when I couldn't really recognize people very well, it was really great when people had, you know, green hair was really right. useful because I couldn't really make out facial features and stuff. And, and then there was sort of this, this irreverence and this um, part of the punk uh, ethos, I guess, would be not caring what the mainstream culture thinks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really useful for um, people that are different in any way. Certainly me as, you know, I didn't identify as a disabled person, but I certainly, you know, had this visual impairment that people couldn't see. Um, 
as far as they were concerned, I was, you know, a normally sighted person, but give me a menu to read or something like that. And I couldn't read. So there was a lot of shame um, attached to that experience when I was a teenager. And I think punk allowed me to frame that difference in a way that was empowering and raw and raucous as opposed to just making me feel sort of cringy and not fitting in. When you were 15 years old, uh, you've said you can no longer read books and you began experimenting with LSD. What did that offer you? My goodness. Well, um, it had a lot to do with uh, just connecting with friends, I think. Mm. Um, at that time, I mean, it was connected with that idea of, um, you know, irreverence and, and not really caring what mainstream society wanted. Um, but there was also a closeness that I had with my friends, even, even though I did have this difference, right, this visual impairment. And there was something about those early drug experiences that, um, I don't know, connected, we, connected me with my friends in a way that was very powerful and I kind of was able to avoid some of the the issues that I think that a lot of visually impaired people um, struggle with. And that is, especially as a teenager, right? And this is probably worse for boys as well, but it was really easy for me to ask my friends, at, for example, at night, um, I couldn't see as well at night. So that was one of the first times when that did kind of limit my uh, ability to move around because I had poor night vision. And so it was like kind of part of our, our friendship, you know, that I always got an arm from one of my, mm. one of my little girlfriends and stuff. And we'd go down and party at Baker beach. This was in San Francisco, <laughs> California. And, uh, yes, do some drinking and, and, and drugs. And, um, so I don't know, it's kind of mixed up with that feeling of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was a bonding thing. And, and also you kind of feel a little bit outside of yourself, um, obviously when you're doing kind of heavy drugs, right. I mean, now I'm, I'm terrified the idea of, you know, being a 13 year old <laughs> doing, doing LSD, but, um, at the time it was, it was really wonderful to have that kind of collapse of self, um, especially as a kid that did feel a lot of shame about my visual impairment. And how do you get over that shame? It, 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 it seems to me uh, that it's, it's not something you can do anything about. And yet you yeah. feel shame. Was it just that you felt outside? And when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, the only thing anyone wants really is desperately to, to be in the circle, not outside of it. Yeah. Um, was that where it came from? It was really the moments where I was confronted with, especially the inability to read. So mm-hmm. at the time, uh, you know, back in the, the stone ages before um, the internet and technology and all of this uh, digital age that has been really good for blind people, I, you know, lost the ability to read normal sized print and there were no answers. I mean, I, I really, I had, there were, there were no options at that time. Um, in the eighties. And, um, so it was simply that I couldn't, I couldn't read every time that would happen, you know, that I'd be confronted with, um, 
with that fact, uh, whether it was with friends or, or with people that I didn't know as well, it was, it was an embarrassment. It was a, it was a shame to me because I had been a very avid reader as a kid, um, as an even younger kid. And so when that started breaking apart, it just made me feel terrible. Um, and then also I couldn't recognize faces very well, again, loss of that detail of the central vision. Right. So it was, yeah, it was just very shameful. And, um, you know, I think there's a couple of answers to how do you get over shame? Mm -hmm. And one is extremely practical. I mean, I kind of think about it now and I, I always say, you know, a little blind kids are so damn lucky these days because, uh, the digital age is, it has really collapsed a lot of the issues that I had when I was a kid. Um, I would have been able to have access to books, um, which was the, the, the biggest thing for me, because I think I thought of myself as sort of a, a budding intellectual badass, shall we say, I don't know if you can say that on the radio, but, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and so to not be able to read books was just the, the worst. And, and that wouldn't be the case as a, as a visually impaired pe person or a blind person. Now, um, you know, the much maligned ebook is really great for blind people. Uh, we can access it via our wireless braille displays or by magnifying the text or by using text to speech. So, um, so that's the practical side of it. You know, I think that as I, as techno, I kind of grew up with technology. So as I got more and more technology to collapse those things that I felt so bad about, um, that really helped with the shame. And then the other side of it is really a lot about what my book is about, which is kind of um, taking on these cultural constructions of blindness and really looking at what they mean for us as actual blind people in the world, both for, for good and for ill. Um, and really understanding how um, blindness is a is a cultural construction, and to be able to own that construction and not let it be constantly dictated by the the sighted creators of the world really makes a huge difference. Um, so, for example, um, making art, you know, make writing a play about Helen Keller's time mm -hmm. in vaudeville, right? So, so being able to kind of own these, these cultural constructions and think about blindness as a cultural artifact and not just a, a, a lesser way of being in the world. Well, we'll talk about Helen Keller in just a minute, but I want to go back even further. Uh, the oh book begins with Homer and who may or may not have been blind uh, but it, it seems to me that that was sort of the very beginning of the idea that uh, blindness comes with some sort of uh, poetic gift yes. that, that that comes along with that, that's inherent with that. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and, and how you deal with it in the book. Yes. So that is my first chapter, Homer's Blind Bard. And of course, not only was he maybe not, a, not blind or not, but we don't even know if Homer actually existed. That's right. Um, he really is kind of this, most probably a kind of a, a, a an idea mm -hmm. of um, of the blind bard as being a, a a personality that could have existed and probably did exist before the invention or the adoption of the written word. So I kind of begin my book with the idea that we love the idea of. Um, of the blind poet, but really all of us read the Odyssey 
as it's come to us as a printed document. And so the metaphor of the blind bard had to do with an earlier era before the, the epics were set down into print. And so the irony, of course, is that even if we love the idea of the blind poet, it's been really difficult for the last 3000 years to be a blind poet because for many, many centuries, we didn't have access to print. So I really wanted to begin with that irony. Um, it was kind of brought to my attention uh, when I was studying the classics at UC Santa Cruz and um, my tutor at the time, because I, I needed some help. I mean, why I decided to choose the classics is maybe part of my like punk rock sticking uh, safety <laughs> pins in my ears. <laughs> um, but yes, so I decided to study the classics and definitely needed some help because my, you know, documents of Homer and and of Latin texts and things like that. I had to have them blown up into kind of half inch high characters or right. inch high characters. So, um, and one day, you know, I went I went over to his house to to get some tutoring, and and he said, you know, that the Greeks revered the blind as poets and prophets, and it was one of those things where it's like, for the first time, somebody was relating that idea, that metaphor with me. And I think it was a moment that was very memorable because of course I had heard this idea that, you know, Homer was blind, but to relate it to me and to highlight my struggles on the one hand, but also to highlight the possibility of, you know, sight beyond sight being a very important metaphor in our Western culture was really the beginning of this, this book in a lot of ways. And the idea of blind people as storytellers, I think probably mm -hmm. uh, dates back to Homer and the very sort of essence of all of that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, it was actually just brought to my attention the other day, uh, uh, Jason Roberts, who wrote this book called A Sense of the World, mentioned to me how he thinks, you know, sort of all blind people are almost always put into the position of storyteller um, because sighted people seem to be so curious. <laughs> and, um, and I think it is also because it's connected with this ancient tradition of, yeah, spinning yarns from, you know, a gift from the muse or something like that. Mm. So, yeah. What sort of questions do sighted people ask you that perhaps they wouldn't ask one another? Oh my goodness. Well, that really runs the gambit from, <laughs> I, I've actually heard a, a friend of mine told me, um, this sounds like a joke and it is a joke, but it actually happened to a, a, a friend where um, she was getting some help walking across the street. And this man actually said to her, so what do you do about sex? <laughs> <laughs> and she, I, and being a smart ass, um, she said, you know, well, oh, I just send it out with the laundry or something like that. You know? <laughs> so also blind people are put in the position of being really funny because we have to deal with, um, you know, a lot of impertinent questions. I mm -hmm. have another story about somebody who was, you know, just sitting there minding her business as a pregnant woman on a public bus. And, you know, how did you get pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, so those are the extremes, but I will say that um, we'll just be walking down the street, you know, trying to get to work, trying to get to a job or what have you, and people will stop you. And, and say, well, you know, how long have you been blind? Or 
or what happened to you or, right. or my uncle is blind. Like, do you have any advice, you know? And, just, <laughs> and so it, it's, you know, I mean, it's everything. Um, interestingly, it's funny, but at the same time, it is something that really fueled the writing of this book, because mm-hmm. I feel like, um, the, the middle ground of just being an, a normal blind person, right. Of, of just going to work and actually needing to get to work or go pick up your kids from school or any of those things that you would assume a stranger walking down the street, you know, mm-hmm. would be doing with themselves. So you wouldn't dare sort of say, you know, are, are you married or, yeah, you know, like do you have right. kids or, you know, stopping them on the street. It's something that is, it, it just somehow it doesn't, across a lot of sighted people's minds that we, you know, are not kind of there to, um, inform you, you know, just on our way to work or whatever, you know, we're not, we're not there to, to kind of, um, explain ourselves, I guess. Well, the book really deals with 3000 years of, of suppositions (laughs) that sighted people make about uh, yeah. blind people, uh, the misconceptions that people make. Uh, and you write about Helen Keller in the book. We mentioned her uh, a little bit earlier on. Helen Keller uh, was extraordinarily famous uh, in her day, but I didn't know, and you alluded to this earlier, that she played on vaudeville, yes. which I thought was uh, fascinating. So tell us a little bit about that and, and how that story grabbed you, because you ended up writing a play about this. Yes. Yes. So, um, I did my dissertation. I was a PhD candidate in, um, 17th and 18th century literature. So a good portion of my book is kind of right in that pocket of the mm-hmm. 17th and 18th century. But towards the end of that, I ran it, I kind of stumbled upon a book called the radical lives of he- Helen Keller. And it was about her extremely leftist politics and uh, a great, great book. Very interesting. Um, but there was like this dismissive little sentence that said, you know, for four years, Helen and Ann Sullivan, her teacher, performed on vaudeville or did the vaudeville circuit from 1920 to 24. And right away I said, wait a minute, how have I not heard of this before? And on top of it, at, at the time I was supposed to be a, a very dedicated PhD student, but I was also performing in um, in open mics in the Lower East Side of New York City and kind of moonlighting as a performance artist. So right away, it was sort of like, okay, I got to finish this dissertation, but when I'm done with that, I am going to do something with this as an artist, as a performer. Um, because at that time, writing another book was not attractive to me after <laughs> working on the dissertation for a few years. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I started researching it. And at the time people weren't really talking about it too much. I think now you can kind of do some Googling and really find Mm -hmm. quite a bit about it. But, um, for her, it was something that, Oh, so I'll say this. I think the reason people weren't talking about it is that people were a little bit embarrassed about it. Um, at the time that she decided to start performing on vaudeville, she got a lot of flack for it. Um, people on the one hand saying, you know, what are you doing? Sort of demoralizing yourself. And on the other hand, people shouting exploitation, you know? And so to, in my mind, it was like, wait a minute, she was a very smart, totally grown woman of 40 when she hit vaudeville and to say things like, oh, you're being exploited is extremely demeaning. And, um, 
and it kind of discounts her ability to make her own intelligent decisions, which in her case was very much about money. Um, you know, they, they kept trying to get her to write more memoirs. And, and she was like, you know, I want to talk about things other than me. And, um, and then there was like the lecture circuit, but that was pretty grueling. And when the vaudeville thing came along, it was great money. And she was considering not only her own finances because she did have, you know, pensions from people like Carnegie and uh, people were sort of giving her money. Um, and of course she was also writing books and things like that, but she was concerned because she even says it in her, in her book called midstream, um, she says, if Annie, if Ann Sullivan were to die, she would be left almost destitute. So Helen was thinking not only of herself, but also of her teacher in terms of making some money. And the coolest part about it is that on vaudeville, she was able to bring in her, her lefty politics mm -hmm. um, during the question and answer period. So I'll, I'll just say this one is one of the examples of, of a question that she would get asked, which was... Um, what do you think of capitalism? And she said, I think it has outgrown its usefulness. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. So and that's she, 1924. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1920 to 24. Yeah. Or so, yeah. So she was not super, you know, her politics were not popular. And that's something that I think that, you know, we don't think about is that people wanted her to tell her life story over and over and over again. And that was something that I really wanted to explore because many of us know her only from the story of my life and the miracle worker. And she published the story of my life when she was like 22 or something. I mean, she was very young. Um, so the story of my very young life is what it should have been called. <laughs> and that's usually where the story ends for most of us, you know? And so I kind of wanted to explore that in the play as well, that, you know, she had this full, amazing life that um, in the miracle worker ends when she's, you know, seven and she lives to be whatever, 87 or something. So um, I wanted to investigate that idea of, you know, being a complex blind person and not just being sort of your angelic inspiration porn or whatever. Ray Charles is someone uh, that tried very hard to to mediate the preconceptions of mm. what it was to be blind in his time. Uh, he was a huge star, huge music star. Uh, but I love that he says uh, there were three things he didn't want: a cane, a dog, and a guitar. Uh huh. <laughs> so, how important is Ray Charles? Mm. Well, in my book, he. He adds, you know, in both senses of the word, he adds a little color. Um, his notions about sex are kind of quite um, mm -hmm. extraordinary. Um, I think what's interesting about him, uh, I think I bring him in a couple of times, but once in a chapter that I called the the Scylla and Charybdis of stigma and superpowers. So really navigating um, that kind of vast uh, dichotomy of you know, blind people being either like super powered uh, in this day and age, but poets and prophets back in the old days, mm -hmm. or being kind of pitiable specimens on the other hand, and that the kind of the vast middle ground is not, uh, is not considered. And one of the things that I think is quite important in that, that I alluded to before is, you know, having a, a sex life. And, um, and so Ray Charles, at least in my book, uh, his sort of, his very, um, extreme notions of how easy it was for him as a rock and roll star, as a, a singer to, um, to, to get sex, uh, is, 
refreshing, right? I mean, he it defied notions of what blind people were as much as he possibly could to the point where I think it might've been a little bit of a, a detriment. You know, he didn't want to use a cane, but you know what? A cane is a really useful device. And I think that that's part of the problem is that sometimes we try so hard to not look blind that we don't do the things that are actually really useful as blind people. And, um, and that's something that I really wanted to, to wrestle with in the book. You know, I mean, it, it, Ray Charles was able to kind of get away with, um, with, with that, right. With wandering around with, without a cane, but you know what he got, he had help getting onto the stage and stuff. Mm. I mean, there's, you know, he, it's not like he wanted to go on stage and, and bumble around either. So it's an interesting problem. And I bring him into the book because of course he's one of these iconic blind figures, um, almost super powered, right. In his talents, uh, like Stevie wonder, mm-hmm. but he was still grappling with the same stigma that all of us, uh, as, as blind and visually impaired people are grappling with. I always sort of had the sense of Ray Charles from reading about him uh, and having seen him perform a few times, but mostly just from reading about him and reading interviews that um, his blindness was, or his musical talent was something that he felt he had to be better than everyone else. He -hmm. had to prove himself in a way Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, sighted musicians perhaps wouldn't have to. Uh, He had to work harder to be accepted. And I mean, I I guess it paid off. I mean, he's an, he's an icon, uh, but yeah. that's was a, a sense that I got from him. Yes, and I and I think that um, that holds true. Right, I think this is probably true for for everybody that doesn't fit into sort of the mainstream. Um, in fact, I just heard an interview the other day that you did about uh, a, a woman of color that you know had to work harder than anybody else um, in in the newsroom. And I, I've heard this mm-hmm. again and again from blind friends that, um, for example, my friend Lori Rubin. You know, you you think that kind of the least uh, path of re- resistance for a a blind person to make a career would be in music, but it simply isn't the case. I mean, you basically have to be a brilliant solo performer to not have to deal with um, the same kinds of discrimination that a lot of us blind people have faced in the workplace. So for example, my friend Lori Rubin is an opera singer and she faced incredible discrimination in, in her auditions um, and at Yale school of music, um, her graduate program. And one teacher actually told her, you know, I heard that you didn't get this part because they were worried about you moving around the stage. Um, and you have to work harder than anybody else, you know? So it's almost like it forces a lot of blind people. And this is probably true for disabled people all across the board. It forces us to not just be normal, but be superhuman. And if we fail, the stakes feel very high because then it feels like the other spec end of the spectrum is like, you know, selling pencils in the subway or, you know, begging with a tin cup or something. It feels like there's no way to just be good and competent (laughs) and, and useful. Let's talk a little bit about spiritual blindness, Mm. which is the over-reliance on, on visual objects. What do those words mean to you? Ah, okay. So this, this gets to, um, one of these ideas that 
the, the one thing that blindness is very useful for is seeing beyond the visible world, which for better or for worse, our, our Western culture seems to be a little bit obsessed with. And I, I kind of think about that in terms of, again, the, the blind poet prophet. So being able in the ancient world to either have a direct connection to the muse on the one hand, or the gods on the other hand, in order to, um, you know, see what, for example, in Oedipus, right. Tiresias says, right. you know, you're the one, right. It, you should, you should really know that the one you're searching for is you. Um, so being able to see what the people around you can't see in a, in a kind of, in a metaphorical sense, but also in a prophetical sense. And that is related to, I argue, uh, notions in Christianity um, that have to do with the importance of the spirit over the, the body, over the physical. And so that one's eyes can actually distract you from the important truths. I think it's kind of the religious context of that, um, that actually your eyes are superficial and they keep you from, um, yeah, it, see, seeing the, the religious, religious truths of being connected with, with God. And also, of course, in a Christian context, it also tends to make you be, uh, too interested in the body, which is not good in terms of, you know, sinning and stuff. So, um, it's an interesting thing because even if, um, even if this is true it, to some extent, right? I, I do think there is probably truths that are beyond the, the eye. Um, it's a problem for a lot of blind people because it kind of forces us into this position of being more spiritual, of, of then not having to have the same struggles as, as other people. Um, you know, how many times do people say, oh, you're so lucky you can't see this, you know, this whatever mm -hmm. horrible thing. Right. Um, and I think it kind of connects up with, uh, you know, the idea that um, blind people are kind of this walking, talking uh, Christian vessel, you know, that is able to keep pure without any problem at all, which of course, Ray Charles is a perfect example of that not being the case. Right. And, <laughs> and I, I quote, um, I quote a friend, actually a Canadian friend, um, who said, you know, as a devout Christian, I've had people say things to me like, oh, you don't sin because you can't see, you know, mm -hmm. and she's like, wow, well, you know, I have the same struggles that you have as a Christian, you know, so it's, it's really weird because it's so powerful that it, it, um, yeah, it keeps a lot of sighted people from seeing the complexities that we also deal with as, you know, humans, you know, because I think we put so much weight on the eyes one way or the other, either thinking that it's the greatest sense or thinking that it's the most sinful sense that again, the, the complexities of just being a human in the world kind of get collapsed and it has real world consequences. I mean, Helen Keller as well, you know, struggled with her sexuality. Um, People did not think she should be married. They didn't think she should be, uh, yeah, at that time, that would have been the only choice really <laughs> getting married and having kids, you know, that that was not something that she should do. And so she, people could kind of think of her as a saint, you know, and, and things like that. So it, it really does have real world 
consequences. And I think that gets right back to what we were talking about before, right? About people saying things like, how did you get pregnant? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> how on earth does that happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> of course, the woman at the, she had a funny comeback, which was basically like, well, a lot of people do it in the dark, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's probably a fairly well rehearsed line. I think so. On, on some levels. <laughs> yes. And there is an audio book uh, for your book. And yes. you say that you read the audio book by ear. What yes. does that mean? Yes. So um, this is where I have to admit disclaimer. Uh, I am working hard on my Braille skills. I have this nifty Braille display. Um, that connects with my computer and with my iPhone um, that I can read books on, but I'm still pretty slow with my Braille skills. So most of my life, I've been doing things by ear using text-to-speech software. So usually, when I hit my computer in the morning as a writer, I type in, you know, usually using a regular QWERTY keyboard, uh, type in, and then my electronic uh, voice. Um, reads it back to me in a very mm -hmm. passionless way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, so when it came time, to, so many, many times I've done uh, short readings for performances and things like that, where I would uh, cut my lines very short and put an earbud in my ear and basically scroll down line by line and and basically repeat the line. So I was like, oh, well, I've done this for performances so many times. I'm sure I can just read my audiobook, <laughs> which not thinking that maybe a 10 minute reading was a little different than an 11 hour reading. That's right. <laughs> so, um, so that's how I did it. I had my computer in the, in the sound booth and um, I had my earbud in my ear and my headphones over and, uh, instead of doing the cutting the lines really short, I actually had my uh, electronic reader read very slowly, at least it's slowly to me, because usually when I write, I have it kind of sped up very fast, but for, for reading speed, I had it kind of slow um, and just repeated the words and hopefully gave it a little bit more inflection than, than my reader does. Yeah. Then those computer voices. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. tend to sound a little bit. They never sound terribly excited about anything. It's true. It's <laughs> it's true. it keeps you very ba balanced. <laughs> that's right. I guess that's the good way to to, uh, to uh, think about that. Uh, well, thank you so much. What a pleasure oh, to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. This is an honor. That was M. Leona Godin. Her book, Their Plant Eyes: A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness, is available wherever you buy fine books. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now, chances are good you remember the Michael Jordan movie Space Jam. 25 years ago, the mix of basketball and the Looney Tunes characters became the highest grossing basketball film of all time. The Looney Tunes return with a little help from a Canadian voice actor named Eric Bauza, who provides the voices for characters you know and love, like Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Elmer Fudd, Foghorn Leghorn, and Marvin the Martian. The movie is called Space Jam, A New Legacy, and it's playing in theaters as of July 16th. Welcome, King James. I'm a cartoon? Ah! I'm shorter than Kevin Hart! No, 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 no. Me. <laughs> <laughs> 
What's up, Doc? Bugs! Bring it here, man. What brings you to Tonewall, Doc? The computer dude kidnapped my son. What in the Matrix hell? This time around, the movie stars basketball superstar LeBron James. He's all business and doesn't understand why his son Dom is more interested in coding than crossover dribbles. Meanwhile, inside the Warner Brothers server-verse, inside their computers, Algae Rhythm, a computer program stuck inside the server-verse and who looks just like Don Cheadle, has his eyes set on LeBron as his way out into the real world. When Dom wanders into the Warner Brothers tech department, he and LeBron get sucked into the movie studio's server and come face-to-face -face with Algae Rhythm. Trapped inside the digital space, the only way out is a high-stakes basketball game. LeBron must recruit the Looney Tunes gang to play against Al's over-the-top goon squad made up of virtual avatars with superpowers and names like Wet Fire, White Mamba, and Kronos. I spoke with Eric Bowser, who does a lot of the voices in Space Jam, A New Legacy, recently via Zoom from Los Angeles, but we had to start by talking about something very uniquely Canadian that he grew up with. What an honor. I've, I've been a fan of yours for the longest time, and uh, I, I never thought in a million years that we'd ever have a conversation about movies and uh, and entertainment so this is a treat well i am so glad that we're able to do it here i can't speak to you without asking you about how mr dress up influenced your career man oh man mr dress up that opening music cue of the piano just it, it just instantly gets you right in the pocket of grabbing that notepad and a, and a pencil you know he was the uh, original like he he was the goat, the, the greatest of all time for me as a children's entertainer because he incorporated arts and crafts and, and imagination and, and uh, you know, funny, like, characters on the show. It, it was just uh, everything that uh, I think every kid should watch, Be, you know, they should... CBC should just keep that going. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly made an impression on you, as did Mel Blanc. Now, we'll we'll talk about Space Jam in just a sec, but Mel Blanc, doing what you do has to be the greatest of all time, I would think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but how did he draw you in? Was it those voices that really made you want to do this and put you on this path? Absolutely. It's, it's the voices but also the, the personality that he put into each and every individual character. You can watch a Looney Tunes cartoon and just kind of close your eyes for a minute and just listen to it. And you just are astounded at the fact that all these characters are coming from one guy. And in Space Jam, uh, you voice many of them and you talk about not imitating, uh, but acting. Tell me the difference because I would think that you want to try and and grab the essence of the character as much as possible mm -hmm. but on the other hand people still have to buy in so tell me the balance there finding that balance well let's see if daffy duck were here he'd probably say uh my father was a canadian goose so therefore i demand a canadian passport uh no it's it's like one of those things where it's like you can start with the voice but you can't be bound to that box. You got to get outside the box because if you listen to Mel Blanc's performances, he was free to act, and, and you know he could be greedy Daffy, but he could be Daffy Daffy. Woohoo! Woohoo! And you have to be able to make those leaps and bounds in order to convince the audience that this character, 
at, at the very least, the person that's trying to portray the character is still aiming for the, the highest standard goal that Mel set for us. You're listening to my interview with Eric Bowser, the Canadian-born voice actor who provides the voices of Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, and many others in Space Jam, a new legacy in theaters on July 16th. A lot of these characters have not been voiced by very many people over the years. So tell me about stepping in front of that microphone for the first time and knowing that you are now part of a very short list who has brought these characters to life. Uh, it is it, at the very beginning. It's definitely, you know, like you're a conductor, right? Right about uh, at that time where he's about to lift the baton and start the the symphony. It, it is kind of scary. It's a tight wire rope to walk, but uh, at the same time, you have to to put all those fears away for a minute and just dive in because. Uh, you know, I know not everyone's going to be a fan. I'm a skeptic, uh, but I can appreciate uh, the men and women that have brought these characters to life because you can really hear uh, what brought them in, what part of their childhood brought them into this role. And is there one character in particular that makes you more nervous to perform than the others? Or do you have a favorite of all of them? Or are they all just like your children and you love them all equally? Uh, you know, I'm going to go with the children uh, uh, route, but I'm going to tell you, Bugs Bunny is, you know, I'm not playing him in this film, but he's definitely uh, still one of the hardest voices to achieve, you know, like it's, it's, it's that sound. And uh, Mel Blanc, his DNA is in that voice. And I think it's just one of the most uh, fantastic character voices and memorable from generation to generation. You live in Los Angeles. Have you gone to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery to see his gravestone? I don't mean to be morbid, but I love that on it, it says, uh, that's all folks. Yeah, the, 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 uh, that's all folks. And it's it's right there. I have gone, uh, they do like a, a lot of summer movie screenings at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, believe it or not. So you are among the stars and and honor the stars. I think it's a fantastic tradition. And if you're ever in LA during the summer, you should check it out. Yeah, it's an amazing place to visit. Uh, just having a look at all the gravestones and, and, and feeling sort of the history of it all. Um, what do you hope that people take away from Space Jam? It's just a really good time at the movies, but what do you hope? Well, I just hope that uh... I hope that this is the movie that brings people back to the cinema, that movie going experience. You know, I, I miss going to the theater and I miss eating popcorn with your friends and being part of that experience. You're just in a room with, with the public and you're experiencing something for the very first time or second time or third time, if, if we're lucky at the box office. But yeah, again, for any Looney Tunes fan, I think you're going to love this film. It's it's a great reintroduction and a reminder for for the older generation and and a new introduction, a new legacy for the new generation. Well, I'm not a betting duck, but my money's on the other team. Big thanks to Eric Bowser. He supplies the voices for the new Space Jam: A New Legacy, which will be in theaters on July 16th. Big thanks to him. Also a big thanks to M. Leona Godin, author of Their Plant Eyes, a personal and cultural history of blindness. You can find that wherever you buy fine books. Also, I'd 
like to say a big thank you to Johnny Sweet, director of Last Call, the shutdown of New York City bars. You'll find that on VOD. My biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, that's all, folks. Yeah.